Okay. So, um, my name is JPB Gerald. I am the host of this podcast. This podcast is called Standardized English. Um, we focus on seeking justice for the racially, linguistically, and neurologically minoritized. For those who don't know what I'm talking about, that's okay. Just listen to the episode. Um, I'll get into today's episode shortly. I will say that um, today's guest is someone I've wanted to have on for a while. Her name is Tiana Sloby. Uh, and, you know, she's really going to tell me about some really interesting research she's been doing on uh, language variation and that sort of thing. Um, but that's not the focus right now because this intro, I don't really do that sort of thing. This is the first full episode I'm recording since I defended my dissertation and became and Dr. Gerald. Hmm. Um, you, if you've been listening to my podcast, you heard the one right afterwards where I was with my wife. Um, so this is not the first time you've heard me as such, but this is the first one I'm recording just fully new. And, and it's not so much, to, I, I already reflected on the degree. I did that already. Um, but what I want to reflect on here is, I'm sorry if you can hear that. My dog is whining below me. I don't know what his problem is. Um, there's a sliding doors thing. You know, that Gwyneth Paltrow movie, but that's sort of there, but for the grace of God, go I. So, I, um, I'm going to, today is May 15th. I am recording the main episode a week from now, but I just, this is just the only time I have free to do this intro. Sunday, May 15th. And on two days from now, on the 17th, I'm getting on a plane for the first time since before the pandemic. The, the best, people are always saying, since the pandemic, and then people get mad saying, the pandemic's not over, which it's not. However... I don't know that people are always saying since the pandemic ended. I think they're just being a little bit sloppy. The best way to resolve that problem, by the way, is to say since the beginning of the pandemic. Great. There you go. You can say this is the first time we did something since the beginning of the pandemic. Nobody says, oh, well, the pandemic is over. It's not, I understand. It's not over. Um, I think that plenty of people are being jerks about it, but plenty of people are just, you know, speaking in shorthand. And so what I'm saying is this is the first time, first time I've been on the plane since the pandemic started. And really, I just happened not to get on a plane the year beforehand, uh, so I haven't been on a plane since April 2019, and that was a very eventful trip, and I went to Toronto. You've all heard of that story a million times. I went to a conference. Um, but, so, I'm only going to D.C. and coming back. Come back the same day uh, for work. Uh, there's an event that they're running at their headquarters, and my job's headquarters is in uh, D.C., or technically Northern Virginia. And, you know, it would be nice to go the farthest I've gone since... The farthest I've gone since the beginning of the pandemic is depending, I don't know if you mean as the crow flies or in terms of distance, but the farthest I've gone, I believe, is Rhode Island. I also went to Cape May. The trip to Rhode Island is probably slightly longer. The trip to Cape May took a long time, but we did it all at once. We broke the trip to Rhode Island up into two parts. It doesn't matter. It'll be the farthest I've been. And then with this job, I'm going to a few places. I'm going to Dallas in July. I am not interested in Considering what's going on in Texas, just in general, I don't really want to go there. And I'm definitely not not excited to go to Dallas in early July, temperature-wise. I am going to stay inside. Uh, and then I'm going to San Diego at the end of July. Um, that part seems like it'll be fun, but it's only two days. And, and I remember when I went to Seattle about five years ago, I was just jet-lagged the whole time. <laughs> um, so I expect to be jet-lagged the whole time. So that'll be a fun two days of being jet-lagged. Um, I'm going to really need to go to sleep on the plane if I can. Anyway, but I, the reason I brought that up is that I'm going to wear a suit on Tuesday, because why not? And I haven't worn a suit in years, like a full suit. I've worn a jacket here and there for interviews, but those are Zoom interviews, so I didn't have to really change my pants. Um, and I've worn formal shirts and so forth. But even when I went to the one conference I went to in person, I was in sweaters and, and nice pants. And I plan to do that on normal work days. But like, this is an event. And sure, I'll put on a suit. I'm not putting on a freaking tie. I don't really do ties that much because I'm bad at tying them. And I get really self-conscious and I get uncomfortable. But I can wear this suit. And so I went into my closet to get the suit. And I realized I had to iron a little bit. It's clean, but it, it's been in one position for so long that something bent a little different. And I went into the pocket and I found... There's a business card in there 
from Hostos Community College. For you, if you don't live in New York, Hostos Community College is part of the CUNY, City University of New York system. There's 20 or 30 schools around New York, but it's all one big system, and Hostos is a really uh, lower Bronx, South Bronx community college. And I applied to lead the, um, you know, workforce development and English language teaching department there for people who needed help, uh, you know, building up their language skills before classes. And the first interview went really well. Like, they called me the next day saying we want a second interview. And then the second interview seemed like it went well. I thought it went well. Like, objectively, it didn't necessarily feel any worse than the interview that I did for my final interview at my current job, which I got, obviously. Um, Thought it went well. And then this was late January 2020. I just didn't hear from them again. And it really stressed me out, and it really upset me. Like, obviously, I stopped being upset. The pandemic, you know, took over New York, and I just did, I just, whatever. Um, but it upset me. I really thought I had done a good job in that interview. And um, I, it's sort of a sliding doors thing, because let's just say they liked me more than they did, or maybe they had some other candidate, and they liked me more than the other candidate, because most likely they had some other candidate they liked more. And I would be remiss, based on the research I do, if I didn't mention that the first interview was a very diverse group of people, and the last interview was all white people, so we don't really talk about that, but it's true. Um, and what's, let's just say I got that job. So one of the things I was concerned about is that, like, let's, that was the end of January, and my son was due a few weeks later. We didn't know if it would, when it would happen. And so let's just say I got that job. Now, if you start a job, you can't take, you know, paternity leave. Like, you can, but you have to negotiate it, like, right after you start. You can't start and be like, I'm going to take the next few weeks off. So let's just say I had been offered the job, because that was the final interview, right? That was late January. Let's say I was offered the job the next week. I would have accepted it, and then I would have tried to talk to them about, okay, my son's about to be born. Can I start in a few weeks after he's born, right? Let's just say they say yes to that. That means everything's going perfect, Right? They say yes to that, and my first my, my my start date is like late March 2020. Can you imagine? I don't even know if that. I mean, I'm sure. I don't know what would have happened. Nothing good, right? I'm all set up for my first day of work. I'm taking my last couple of days of work, and then, you know, I decide to either use my paternity leave as my last few weeks, or just take a few weeks off and they are paternity leave, and. I'm starting this job and then everything happens, right? And at the time, I would have been really excited for that job because it was a language job. I hadn't had a language job in a while. I kind of wanted to get back in language. This is before any of my... This is when my first Altruistic Shield article had just come out. And my second article was written but hadn't come out yet. And I didn't know I would become something that like would ever write a book. I just thought I would just get a job. And, you know, I've been really excited about it. Salary-wise, it was more than my job at the time. In retrospect, like... Things ended up really working out for me as much as it was a struggle at my last job at various points. You know, where I got to now, um, I wouldn't have gotten there had these two people just decided that they, they wanted to prefer someone. I don't know what happened to Hostos, but I just, it, it, seeing that business card in my suit jacket pocket, all torn up because it was dry cleaned, but um, seeing that in there reminded me that, like, things that I thought would have been really good at the time might not have been for the best and I wouldn't have the job that I have now and I'm not trying to attach happiness to a professional whatever, whatever, but it is interesting when you think about these things in retrospect. Anyway, um, what do they say on Saturday Night Live? We got a great show for you. For, we got a great show for you tonight. Um, but no, it'll be a really interesting episode. Tiana was really excited when I asked her, so hopefully it'll be an interesting conversation. And um, anyone who's interested in supporting the show, it uh, is always available to do so on Patreon. We appreciate anything you give. Um, I really just do that so that people can feel a part of this. Don't worry if you you don't want to send me a dollar a month. Like that's fine, you know. And like I've said before, people who donate above a certain amount will get a discount when my book does come out in September. So incentive. All right. We should probably start. 
Um, so we are here this, I always say evening because that's what time I record these, but it's not evening for you. And it is also morning when the episode's released. And I don't know when people listen to this, so it could be anything. But let's just say good evening. Uh, I'm here with Ty Slobe. Is it Slobe or Slobe? Slobe. I, I said, okay, Slobe is correct because I said that in the introduction that I recorded last week. So I was right. Based on what I had read on the internet. Great. Um, so anyway, I'm here with Ty Slobe on an episode that I did have to call way harsh. Um, and you know, like way harsh, Ty, you know, you you know. (laughs) Yeah, I I got it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, we're going to. Not everybody's going to know what that means though. That's okay. That's okay. okay. Not, okay. Everyone, not everyone's going to know. Insider uh, information. Exactly. The, the, the reference. If pe- the people, based on what I know about my audience, the couple hundred people who listen to this show are mostly in their late 20s, early 30s. They probably would understand the reference. Like, I would think that they do. Okay. Good. Anyway. So, anyway, thanks for being here. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to have you join us. I am going to read what you sent even though I said I was going to forget that I was going to do it. Um, Ty is a PhD candidate at UCLA. She studies political participation among high school students at public private schools in Santiago, Chile. I have thoughts about the things I know about Chile, which are limited, but I'm going to let you explain what you do and who you are. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Wait, what do you want me to explain? Like you know, some your studies. Like, what what is it that you that you do as as as, a, as an academic person? Yeah. So, um, before the pandemic, I'm in the linguistic anthropology subfield, specifically of anthro. I have an MA in uh, linguistics um, from University of Colorado, and um, my dissertation research I was doing um, like participant observation and recording student council meetings um, and stuff like that in Santiago in. Um, I started preliminary fieldwork in 2016, um, but the, I was there for a whole year, in a whole school year in 2019, um, and there was a big political uprising in 2019 um, that was started by high school students, um, and I was specifically interested in political participation um, and class and like, school segregation, um, which was why I was in a public and a private school, and um yeah, so what my dissertation is ending up being is a comparison of those, uh, like, students' experiences during the political uprising um, and what that looks like across socioeconomic class and stuff like that. How did you get specifically interested in, in, in uh, I guess, Chilean politics or just Chilean uh, Yeah, I mean, actually, when I started at UCLA, I was interested in doing the same project in Los Angeles, um, and but I had lived in, in Chile previously um, in 2011, 2012. Um, and, uh, I realized that there are a lot of people doing research in U.S. schools and specifically California schools, especially on like linguistic variation and stuff like that. Um, and then also I'm not from California, so I also at that point had more connections to schools and teachers and, uh, principals and stuff like that in Chile. So <laughs> it made a lot more sense for me to go there. Um, and also Chile of OECD countries has like the most segregated school system. Um, of like quote unquote developed countries. They're like the countries that are considered like economically well off. Um, and it's also just very overtly politicized the education system in Chile. Like people are always talking about, um, the dictatorship in the 1970s and how dictatorship reforms change the education system and privatize the education system. And that's something that, um, is very prevalent in discourse among students and also adults. And, uh, that is what I was interested in. And then that was also immediately relevant during the uprising. I, sh- I should probably not ask the woman who runs my son's daycare, who is Chilean. <laughs> I'm curious. Yeah, so you said that. And whenever somebody in the U.S. is like, you know, I know a Chilean, <laughs> I'm always like, okay, <laughs> um, what do they think? I mean, I mean, I can't think of when it would come up because she's always around all the, you know, other parents and all that. And I wanted to be like, what do you think about educational forms in Chile? Yeah. On the on the one hand, she could have any opinion. On the other hand, she did come here. So yeah. I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means she's like, I would rather be here than there, or I don't know if it means something else. I, don't, I have no speculation. 
Um, it could be a lot of things. My boyfriend is here with me right now. I think you'd rather be in Chile. <laughs> I, I think I'd rather be in Chile too. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I, when I, um, I studied abroad at a university in 2011 and 2012 during that, um, like Northern Hemisphere academic year. And there were also a lot of student movements, um, at that time, like several months, like universities were on strike, high school students were on strike. Um, and one of the political y- leaders of those, um, university movements, uh, is now the president of Chile. Um, he was elected, what year are we in right now? 22. Yeah, so I think it was, it was last year. <laughs> uh, Boris was, uh, was elected last year. Um, and Chile is currently drafting and hopefully about to approve a new constitution based on the political movements. Um, yes, yeah, so I very much was, I think my interest in student political participation, um, definitely stems from the student movements in 2011. Um, and being in a Chilean university in 2011. Um, but it was, you know, an extremely relevant topic, um, when shit hit the fan. Uh, it was doing field work in 2019. So, um, that has been, you know, what I'm trying to figure out how to do now, like turn that into a dissertation. I think all of us go into dissertations with, um, a plan. You know, we have to like apply for grants or at least make ourselves like legible to um, anybody that we're interacting with. And so my plan was to compare student council meetings <laughs> um, and I wasn't able to do the recordings of student council meetings that I wanted to just because um, schools were closed uh, during the uprising and, and then closed for COVID afterwards. Um, but I was definitely studying student political participation and that is what caused the uprising so so well-placed project I think yeah I mean I guess what I'm curious about is like what um I know you're saying that they're about to or hopefully going to approve a new constitution but like what um you know COVID interrupted a lot of things so what was the result um I can't imagine it slowed down revolutions or revolutionary feeling for the pandemic to have arisen there. But I'm wondering, like, based on what you were specifically focused on, like, if you think, like, what do you think the effects were? Um, I honestly, I have to say, like, in terms of, like, my, like, frequent engagement with students and stuff like that, it definitely did end at the end of the 2019 uh, school year because, um, so, for example, the private school did open again for classes um, after the uprising started for a few weeks to finish out the school year. The public school um, tried to open and it didn't work out for transportation reasons and for safety reasons and then for student strike reasons. Um, and so I was around, but there weren't like classes. And then um, the public school did not return to in-person classes until this March, uh, March 2022. So um, the students that I were, was working with who were in uh, 10th grade during the 2019 school year graduated um, in December of last year. So, uh, yeah. Um, but, I mean, COVID did slow down, like, the constitutional reform process in that. Um, I'm looking at Alexis because I'm thinking. ¿Cuándo votaron para la constitución? And... Uh, it was it was October of 2021. Yeah, it was October 2021. Originally, it was going to be. No, that was when they elected constituents. I don't remember. It did slow it down by a few months because they had to like rearrange elections and stuff because of quarantine. But. uh, Yeah. What was the question? No, I was just <laughs> asking what the impact was. And you're saying that, you know, like really did interrupt a lot of things because people weren't really near each other. Yeah. Yes. But definitely the groundwork had been laid and even like the political groundwork, like very quickly, they, you know, decided there was going to be a vote on a new constitution, like whether or not to draft one at all and how, what that would look like, whether it would be like elected by the government or a like democratically elected constitutional assembly. Um, so that vote did happen. It was just delayed a little bit by COVID. Right. Um, so, I mean, I'm eventually going to get to your actual article. Um, I'll get there. It's not about Chile. <laughs> I know. I know. It's, yes. it, that's that's kind of what I want to say. It's like it's, before I get to the article itself, it's like 
um, you know, your angle of analysis in terms of your dissertation at least seems to be a little bit different from what you've written publicly. So I'm wondering how your interests have a lot have been been dispersed in those two directions. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I mean, I I like I understand that I write about different things too, but I'm saying for you, how you know how how have your interests sort of dispersed in the book? Um, which article are you talking about? I suppose I'm looking at the Mike White Girl article. Okay. But yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I haven't published anything related to my dissertation research yet. Um, but I have two articles that I have published. One is Mock White Girl and the other one, um, is about George Zimmerman's defense lawyer and how he treats Rachel Zantel in the, in George Zimmerman's like murder trial. Yeah. Um, the one, Kelly was talking about that, that article in, in her talk. You know Kelly, right? Yeah. 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 Oh, awesome. Um, yeah. So you're saying those are different. I'm, 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 no, I'm, I'm saying clearly, I think that any academic who pretends that their disparate interests are just unrelated is, is, is not really necessarily being authentic about it. What I'm saying is those two things seem really different from yeah. someone who's not necessarily as in tune with sort of the ideas you're working with. So what do you find to be the relation between what seem like disparate ideas? I, um, yeah, I don't think they're different at all. I was, I'm really interested in elitism and, um, like gatekeeping around in, in the context of the U.S., we could say whiteness, um, and, you know, socioeconomic things. And that is definitely what I was interested in, at least going into my field work in Chile too, um, like gatekeeping around upward mobility and costs and how that plays out in the school system. Um, and then through that, like once I started fieldwork, I became a lot more interested in um, like what that looks like in terms of how students are socialized into different forms of democratic participation. Um, and yeah, I, I definitely, I still think that is what I'm interested in, um, elitism and, and class segregation and things like that. Um, but I also feel like, again, like because of what happened in Chile with the uprising, what my dissertation is going to end up being, um, not, it's not that it like took a life of its own, <laughs> but I just think the what happened is so important, and the fact that I was there to like document any of it, like with any teenagers in schools, like at all, it was really um, fortunate. I mean, do you you work with like youth, right? Well, I work with adults actually. Okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Either way, anybody who's ever gone through like an IRB process will know like how difficult it is, especially if you're working with uh, minors, like people under 18, to get like the consent and assent process. And that took me, you know, months because I was working with whole classes of, of students. That took me months to get put into place. And so the fact that when um, the uprising started, the fact that at least in one of the schools, they already had um, consent and assent from all the students in the class and they could, you know start recording with everybody's permission and stuff like right away I just feel like that is uh you know lucky <laughs> um for but for, an, for documenting what happened I think yeah it's an underrated part of uh getting projects done is whether or not they're actually going to be able to get done so like I, I think that people outside of the academic space don't quite understand you know Sometimes people will say, why was this study done? And it's like, because it could get done. <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah. And I also feel like, um, I mean, the whole time I was doing research, anybody who does research with people, I just feel so lucky, like so lucky that anybody like ever would let me into their life in the first place to, to do ethnographic research um, like this and to share things with me and, um, I think that so much has happened since the Chilean uprising. So it started with uh, high school students protesting in the metro um, about a metro fare increase. And it since escalated, um, like I said, to a new constitution, to all sorts of political reforms. And I think that the youth aspect of that, the fact that it was high school students, I wouldn't say it's gotten like lost in like the discourse about it, but it's definitely not like the focus, the focus is on like, oh my God, like Chile's getting a new constitution. Like, look at this. Chile just elected a socialist president. Um, you know, all these very adult things, um, without sort of like going back to the fact that this was very much started by teenagers. Um, and so 
I hope to do the teenagers that I worked with justice in representing um, what that was like for them during that time in my dissertation. So, I mean, that's interesting, right? Because, you know, we'll say you finish. I'm not saying you won't finish. I'm just saying. <laughs> that's how I feel sometimes, too. It's okay. <laughs> when you get to that point, mm-hmm. finish. It's in the ProQuest. Um, aside <laughs> aside from the ProQuest, you know, where would you hope to go with these findings um, beyond the, you know, constraints of your specific degree requirements? Would, you know, where would you like to go with with the writing even, you know, because... Um, I think that often shapes sometimes, you know, how the writing comes out. But like, yeah, so where would you like to go with these findings once you're done, quote unquote, done? Um, I definitely want my dissertation to be the start of a book project. Like, I definitely want it to be a book. Um, ideally a book that is both in English and Spanish so that it is maximally useful and, and accessible to the people. Um, that helped me with my research with schools and stuff, but it's something that we always had an agreement about that I was going to make, send all of them my research and, and things so they could look it over as well. Um, but yes, I want, I want this to be a book project specifically about um, youth involvement in the Saido, the uprising. Um, and then like, I think in anthropology, at least um, it is like common, if not necessary, if you want to get like, an academic job and get tenure that you like have to publish something as a book um and I don't know if I I mean I would like to stay in academia and I don't know if that's going to be possible you know just because who knows like who can stay um it's very difficult um but either way I'm still looking at ways that I could make this into a book just because um yes I want it to be publish <laughs> um, and not just through ProQuest. I mean, <laughs> to me, I'm biased, but the act of writing and publishing a book is valuable in its own way. So. <laughs> I haven't um, done it yet. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, about it. It hasn't come out yet. So uh, in September. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think that, I mean, it's, I want to say it's a shame, right? That like, because what do you think about, because I want to say it's a shame that it's so hard for people to get these, you know, legitimate jobs, right? But then I think back to when it was quote unquote easy, but like it was easy for like six white guys, right? Yeah. Once they made it easier for everybody else, they made it harder for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just, exactly. it's not a coincidence that these happen at the same time. <laughs> um, and, you know, because I, I think that some some people in academia miss when they point out that the shifts happen and, you know, it didn't become a living wage or the average person is a living wage or whatever. And they don't note the like demographic change at the same time um, that, that these things, you know, it's the same with property value and all that shit. Uh, anyway, I don't want to go too deep into that because it's not helpful to anyone's life. Um, <laughs> but um, I really think that that. Um, I don't know. When I think about a lot of academic projects, I, although I do understand, especially with dissertation situations where people are just like, hey, I get a project done. I do wonder, like, I sometimes find that there is still a lot of publication done on things where I just wonder what is the, the weight of what you're even looking at? You know, like, like, I think there's still too much just CV filling stuff um out there and um i so i understand that i'm it's a little bit simplistic to say that because i know there are some articles that are published that are part of a larger project and someone's just like here this fits in this year it's like i understand that there are things that aren't like that but um i still find that it's it's hard as a student um it's hard as anyone consuming the composition um, to differentiate sometimes between what really seems to matter, like the documenting of a, a, you know, a revolutionary act versus mm-hmm. what else is published in the same issue. So how do you think that, you know, 
I mean, that's part of the point of the book, right, is that people can do something separately but as opposed to a journal article. But how do you think that, that people who are – I know it's arrogant to say, but who, who think that they're really genuinely trying to do transgressive or radical work can get their work to stand out, you know? I know that's a that's a big question, <laughs> but that's where my brain went. Um, I don't know that I uh, am trying to do transgressive and radical work. I want to say that I'm not, but I also wouldn't say that I like am. Okay. Uh, I I guess so. Like related to my dissertation, I just feel like the transgressive and radical work like wasn't it wasn't the anthropologist in the room. It was the teenagers. <laughs> um, and so, uh, but I mean, that is something that I really like worry about. And um, in terms of like representing um, the kids that I worked with, I mean, obviously like I'm only using pseudonyms um, and stuff like that, but I'm also uh, trying to be very sure. And I haven't um, written like a full dissertation chapter yet, but I have done a couple of like conference presentations um, at this point on stuff, and I run my analyses by the students themselves, like that are in the videos or in the in the audio that I'm using, like to get feedback on um, what I'm saying to make sure that they like agree with with what I'm saying. Because um, a lot of times I'm saying like really weird stuff about linguistics too, that obviously like isn't something that they were thinking about in the moment. They were just talking, um, <laughs> not not thinking about voice quality or whatever it is. Um, and so, but the fact that, um, I mean, that anthropologists or anybody who works with people is working with people is, is extremely like on my mind. Um, this isn't just like, um, and I think that is like anthropology and linguistic anthropology's like potential contribution to something as big as like Chile's political uprising is uh, like being there and having worked with people. I was working with students on issues related to political participation for years. Um, before this and and learned a lot about it for years before the uprising and so um I mean hopefully just having you know been there and learned what I what I did learn and like continue to learn like from the students will be representing but I don't think that like I don't think academic book projects are particularly like always transgressive well I mean no but no 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 this leads to a different point right is that like of course, these are, like, how can you possibly be tearing down the system with a piece of it, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, academic books have been part of the academic system since there have been academic systems. So, therefore, what, you're going to throw <laughs> – I'm sure people have written the most absolutely radical stuff, but it comes out under, like, Cambridge or something, and people are like, okay, and they put it on their pile. And so it's just like, what are you really doing? I think that, what, you know, my dissertation, which is done but not published, um, very small-scale study where I interviewed, like, 10 people about um, their efforts to move away from their expectations of whiteness. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, one of the things that I found is that as much as I'm a cynic about public speech and the potential influence of it, 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 it does seem like so many people have resonant moments of Sometime they heard someone say something at a conference or sometime that they, they, they just a book happened to hit them. And so it's this weird thing where I don't think that the actual publication is really revolutionary. It's just part of the publishing system, right? Unless you like wrote it longhand and, and, and handed it out to people in pamphlets on the street corner or some shit like that. Well, I think, yeah. I think there are definitely like revolutionary texts. And I also don't want to say that that's like, you know, for sure. That's not my position that those are like outside of academia. Like people are definitely publishing like groundbreaking, you know, hugely important work. But I guess I think maybe like the book itself isn't where I see like the most dramatic work being done. Not the most dramatic work, but just like the most meaningful work, but like teaching stuff, um, like classroom conversations. Uh, And so like, to me, that is, why publishing this is is like so important not just because I think it is you know 
a really important representation of youth in this like very important youth period <laughs> in like Chilean history. Um, but also because of what it can be used for in classrooms, I think in university classrooms or wherever people end up teaching it. And so like, even if I, you know, don't think linguistic anthropology texts are the most like, you know, groundbreaking <laughs> thing ever. Like I love them and I love teaching them. Um, and I definitely see students getting a lot out of, out of, out of that. And I actually speaking of like what resonates with people, I really, I was personally really drawn to, I think, research in high schools, um, and the like, uh, like Jonathan Rosa, Mary Buckles, like Norma Mendoza Benson, people who have like ethnographic work in high schools. And I think I was drawn to that because I started reading it when I was, you know, not that far out of high school, like an undergraduate. And I see that with my students as well, being really drawn to, to, and really interested in, in like youth cultures and, um, youth linguistics and youth whatever. And so, um, hopefully too, my work can be used to not just teach about like youth culture, but uh, politics and political participation in class and things like that. Uh, The thing I want to ask is the the way that um, I find that there's a potential for this sort of work to really have an impact on people um, is, you know, what you're saying in terms of like not just the text existing, but someone's ability to tap into it and bring it out to people. Yeah. You know, like obviously there can be powerful texts in themselves, but to me, when I first, in fact, the, the moment, like a lightning strike when I got into really anything more towards social linguistics or, or, or and racial linguistics, that sort of thing mm-hmm. was that like, I had, you know, I, I was like, you know, part of my, the anger in my writing about whiteness and language teaching is that like, I was a language teacher. I, I didn't learn this until I stopped being a language teacher. Mm-hmm. And I have all those years where I, I can't go back and undo it. And I'm mad about it. Like that's part of why my language writing sounds like it does is because like I spent nine years not knowing this shit and yeah. I, and I, and I feel like I, I really harmed people and I can't undo that, you yeah. know? Um, and so in this class, you know, in my doctoral program, the second semester class that I took, you know, we had to take, it was called repack and it was some acronym for like recurrent research in basically. Right. Yeah. I forget what the, fucking word stood for but um the r was for research but um <laughs> and, yeah and um so anyway the first of the repack was like like you know language teaching i was like oh i i got my master's and i know this this is gonna be so easy i just this is not like great i got like it's the other class of statistics and i didn't want to do that i was like i'm stressed about statistics so i was really excited about the english language class um and then one of the professors started teaching, like, really, like, just, you know, busting out of the binary stuff, you know, uh, talking about racial linguistics and, and, and talking about, you know, translanguaging. And I was like, what's happening here? And, like, yeah. when she taught her class where she got the whole – it was two professors, and she was – she got the whole – who's the junior professor? She got the whole floor talking about translanguaging, and she went the fuck off using a text but like it was her that connection between the person and the text uh-huh which is i think what you're talking about so important yeah yeah <laughs> um is is like you do need a text for it though <laughs> so that's 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 what i'm saying about the importance of it is that like you know our texts are important but it's true that like a person connecting with it and conveying it to people and that and it's hard because not every professor can do that i've had some professors that they can't do it so mm-hmm. Totally. Yes. Um, I agree. Um, and so, yeah, so going back to like the mock white girl, girl article, for example, um, and how that's like related, <laughs> I have seen that article picked up just like by like, people telling me about it or like being invited to classes, um, where it was on the syllabus to talk about it and the ways that students have interacted with it, like, since it's been published, um, that I have known about. I have just been, like, 
so interesting. And it was, I was so worried about that. I mean, I didn't really think that anybody would read it <laughs> when I was like writing it and like when it got published, but I was really worried about, you know, how it was, I mean, I spent years on it, right? Like when it was, how it was going to be interpreted between the time that was my MA thesis and when it was like a publication. And, um, I gave a whole bunch of conference presentations on it to get feedback and stuff, uh, you know, before that. But, um, if anything, I mean, the experience of having published that article and, and have had people read it since then makes me almost like more nervous for my dissertation. Not that I think anybody's going to read my dissertation, but the future like actual publications to come out of that. Um, just, I, I guess I have a lot of anxiety around writing and that is also why I haven't like published anything related to my dissertation yet. Um, I, it's, I find it like very difficult to write because <laughs> um, I get like extremely nervous about how people are going to like interpret things and whether or not I'm being like as clear as possible and stuff like that. And so um, I feel so like emotionally connected. Wait, is something happening? <laughs> 15 minutes. <laughs> My wife asked. <laughs> okay. I'll wrap it up. No, no. She just asked how long. I wasn't saying it to be like. Whatever. No, no worries. Um. <laughs> It's okay. We COVID time. Yep. Been there last week. Um. Yeah. But but like that makes me just like so nervous. And I know that this is something like after it's my dissertation that I'm gonna have to be working on for like a long time in order for it to be a, a something that I you know publish. Not because I think we should all just like be publishing. You know. We should get our stuff out there. Yeah, we should like get our stuff out there and like this is like a barrier for me that I know I have to like work through, but um I'm extremely like I guess aware (laughs) of the fact that that people are gonna read it. (laughs) Um and that I need to to be doing the best that I can to like do justice for the people that I worked with. The um um, (coughs) the um it's 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 a shame because I feel like the people who publish a lot of just garbage do not actually care what people think about what they write. And that's probably one of their skills is not caring about it. Um, one thing I'm very, cause I was, I did a master's in a linguistics program and I'm in an anthropology program. And I've definitely, I mean, I'm not going to speak for every linguistics program or every anthropology program, but definitely in the like methods classes that are taken at UCLA. So much of the class is like reflecting on what the author did and how they represented themselves as the ethnographer and how they represented, you know, other people and ethics, really like ethics of representation. Um, and so that is something that too has also been ingrained into me um, as I move through my PhD program. It's, it's, it's something I thought about a lot too. Um, I'm black, as you may have heard. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, I come into this program. I'm at a public school. I have mostly gone to private schools in my life. And I chose that on purpose, not some like slumming or some nonsense, but because I really wanted a better experience. Mm-hmm. You know, I hadn't. Plenty of my teachers were nice to me, but the institutions were what they were. They were, you know, exclusive places, and they and I had this very conditional inclusion. You know, yeah. it wasn't it wasn't, ex, it wasn't explicit to me. It wasn't like I'm going to kick you out, but like it was very, you know, socially it was not, you know, where we need to be. And so, you know, and I'm like, this is the la-, you know, there was this small part of me that wanted to get a doctorate. I, I got my master's in 2012, and I was off doing my thing for years after that. And I was like, that's it, I'm done. I got my degree, you know. And um, don't worry, I'm getting to the point of representation. I, I will get there. Um, but, uh, you know, finally, like, I had a job that gave partial tuition remission on um, the school that was affiliated because I worked for a in the university system, although I wasn't working in academia. And mm-hmm. I said, I can, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll do it. It's time. And so I go in and like one of the things I'm learning is like I learned so quickly, like I was interested in researching like, things about racism and that sort of thing. And um, and I just started to realize how many things and I understood in two ways. 
both because of who the researchers were and who the subjects were. And subject is a word I'm using on purpose. Um, and also because of the fucking way that academic articles are written. That everything, mm-hmm. like every article, even if it was like about like two kids were playing double dutch, the way it was fucking written, if it was two black kids, it would sound like these kids were being like cut open on a table and like examined by like, you know, forensic psychologists. Yeah. Like every article sounds like that, even if you're talking about two people playing double dutch. Yeah. And I think that if the people who wrote that shit cared at all about how they wrote or the people that they were, you know, interested in examining, then we would all be better off. So that's, that's all I, that's my advice to you. <laughs> is, is yeah. to think about how little the other people care about it. Uh, I, cause I, I, I learned really fast. I started, and I've said this many times on this podcast, but when I got there, I said, I don't know, I don't know if I know how to do this. Mm-hmm. And so I said, I'm just going to do it the way I know how to do it. And I hope it's like I closed my eyes, took a three pointer. I was like, I hope it's going to go in. Uh, and it went in and, and I just kept doing it that way. So I just, what I learned was that I can't write the way that most articles are written. So I'm going to see if it works if I write the way that I write. And it honestly only works sometimes. Yeah. Because there have been submissions that people are like, I feel like, the, the comments suggest that I was laughed out of the room. Uh, because of like the format of the article that you submitted or? Yeah, the, yeah, the, the, I'm obviously making up the laughing, but the, 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 you know, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of comments on the style. Reviewer two situation? Yeah, a lot of comments on the style. Oh, that is. I, I, mean, I, I hate style comments. Like if, if the, I, please tell me where my argument fails. Yeah, exactly. And if it does, legit, like any, Comments on the argument are legitimate to me, or if I literally just didn't respond to the prompt correctly, like that's that's my fault. You know what I'm saying? Like if you said right a subject about this and I just didn't address the right subject, I've done that before. I go off on my own. So going, taking this and going back to like this question of like whether or not academics are like revolutionary. Yes. <laughs> um, with what oh, they you do. focused me up. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Like I feel. I mean, this is why I still want to stay in academia. Like I want that to change, and I feel like with the work that I've you know done with students, have learned to give comments that are not about style. Like that's something you know when you're in like a high school English class in the U.S you like learn uh this like red pen etiquette you know and somebody always like commenting on on your language um and I mean even like everybody's right but especially if you're not like if you're not a speaker of like standard white American English um and so I think that like being involved in teaching or publication processes and undoing that is you know maybe not like the biggest act ever um, but it's a mundane thing, like day to day, a way that that like people who are aware of language and language research and committed to uh, linguistic variation and diversity, um, you know, can do and I think are good at doing just, you know, not giving shitty comments on student papers or not giving shitty comments on like articles and uh, publishing more articles that are not this very like standard format that you just described, like scientific sounding, um, whatever, whatever. Yeah, I think that I honestly think that there is a violence in the lack of personality in academic writing. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, because I look back at the, you know, the like the tenor of the article is the same whether it's 1860 or 2022. You know what I'm saying? Um, and you can read what in retrospect, like if you look beneath the surface is like examined, you know, is, is, um, evidence of horrible things that have occurred. And it's written the same way as like something really amazing. And, uh, you know, I think that that is a very, it's a very deliberate choice to flatten all of it into that so that things, uh, that we would think of as morally reprehensible would be covered. I think that that is, mm-hmm. that's, that's a thought that I had. 
I also do think, um, you know, it seems personality list, but I think that represents a certain type of personality. Well, they, that has been like internalized yeah. by institutions. <laughs> um, yes. It's true. It's true. It's, it's, uh, the, the beigeness of the writing is not, it's not without, it's, you know, embodied counterpart or whatever the best way yeah. to describe it is like there's people mm-hmm. who are who are that and i think that 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 um yeah so um i don't know i think it's a big question you know about the the because we i mean if you go into these sort of things in academia and you think that i'm going to change the world you're not going to get anywhere but I think that there's always a, you know, a question of where, where one's work can go, you know? And it's something I think about a lot when I think about who's, you know, reading the things that I write because, mm-hmm. or listening to this show is like, where are they going to take these ideas? I hope that they are taking them somewhere valuable. That is why I like teaching so much. I mean, again, I don't know where my things are going to go, if anywhere, but I do see 150 students a week um, at this point. And I do, you know, when I get to teach my own classes, get to choose who's on the syllabus and like what we're reading. And I take that like very seriously. Um, And I think we all should, uh, because I think at least on a day-to-day basis in a mundane way who the students at academics are working with are the people that we are um just by virtue of the institution and like paid labor who we have like the most influence over <laughs> that's where my influencing is definitely happening is in classrooms and so you know ideally like hopefully my work all of our work will be picked up and and in classrooms and used in, cl- in other people's classrooms but even if it's not like we can still control to an extent at least what we're reading in in our own classrooms. To an extent. Yeah. Not everybody always does the reading. It's okay, we can still talk about it. <laughs> All right. Future Doctor Sloby. Uh I definitely enjoyed having this conversation with you. I know it was freewheeling, but that's Kind of the way my brain works. I thought we were going to talk about farts. This was, this was fine too, though. <laughs> yeah. But I had to disappoint you on that. Okay. Um, I hope you feel better from COVID. It's, uh, it's okay. Just, I mean, two, the next two sentences are where it's at. It's pretty boring, mm-hmm. but it could, but it could be a lot worse than boring. Totally. So you should just rest, sleep. Yeah, I got too much work to do. Keep off the boredom and the COVID. I have too much work to do. All right, uh, Ty, thanks for talking to me tonight. I enjoyed our conversation, and um, I hope that you did as well. Thank you. Have a great night. Thanks so much. (laughs) Bye. Bye.